Um, hip hip hooray, let's give a cheer, it's 9 a.m., the signal's clear, our favorite host is in the chair, the Truman Show is on the air. It's the Truman Show with Truman Jones, a look at the politics, news, sports, and people that are shaping Rutherford County. The Truman Show is on the air. The Truman Show is on the air. Now from Adams Place on Memorial Boulevard, it's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS. Here's Truman Jones. Good morning, Rutherford County. I hope you're more awake than I am this morning. This cold weather, and then you get back into the warm weather, Greg, Greg Tucker. Uh, it, it, uh, it just zaps me. I, I mean, I just want to go right back to bed and stay there. Wintertime's hard on you. Yeah, it, well, I can see looking at you that you've been suffering with it. Oh, I'm definitely suffering with it. Oh, I do want to mention um, my good friend Eddie Bowman passed away. And such a great, great guy. And uh, he was with the, at the sheriff's office for quite a few years. And... Uh, we're going to miss him. He, he's just a special, special man, and uh, I meant to mention it the other day, but uh, losing friends is one of the hardest things that you can do, and he, he was. He was he was from the old school. I mean, he, he was dedicated to serving the people here in Rutherford County. Now, you've been traveling, Greg, and I don't know how you do it in this cold weather, but... <laughs> But you went way down south to Memphis. All the way to Memphis. Yeah. Which for some people is a three to four hour drive. The way we do it, it's five to six hours. But you uh, enjoy life. You enjoy everything. Well, we enjoy traveling together. And uh, I'm, I'm losing a friend, too. Losing, as yeah. you've had experience, to Alzheimer's. So we were at least in contact yeah. uh, down that way. But we discovered uh, one of the state parks that I had never even heard of. I don't know why it's on the list. Turns out it's one of the first four that were used to set up the state park system. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called Meeman Shelby. It's in Shelby County, North Shelby County. And uh, Meeman, I wondered, you know, what's the name Meeman? Where did it come from? It wasn't in the literature. Uh, Meeman, though, was the publisher. Well, he started out in Tennessee in Knoxville and was publisher of the newspaper, or editor, I guess you'd say, in Knoxville. Newspaper was owned by the old Scripps Howard mm -hmm. uh, yeah. system. And while he was in Knoxville, he advocated, this was back in the 1920s, his name was Edward Meeman, M-E-E-M-A-N. He advocated for creation of a national park, which eventually became the Smoky Mountains mm -hmm. uh, National Park. And he's generally credited with uh, being a major factor in, in getting that approved, getting it through. And then he relocated to Memphis, a larger newspaper owned by the same company that he had been working for. And while in Memphis, he advocated for creation of this huge park in North Shelby County. 
it must be four or five thousand acres right on the Mississippi River up north there. And so they put his name on the park, Neiman Shelby State Park. And it is very much, this time of year, underutilized. We were the only people in the park other than the park personnel. Uh, but I enjoyed reading about the creation of the park because it was, along with Fall Creek Falls and two others, uh, built by the CCC. Mm. Uh, which had quite an impact here in Rutherford County as well. And they've built the park, laid out the roads, built the facilities and such. And then in 1944, the federal agency that was doing the work through the CCC turned the park over to the state during the war. Uh, but that created the state park system as it has grown today. And uh, interesting. We all know the Smoky Mountains, the rocky uh, terrain up there. This park has no rock, absolutely no rock. It's in the bottomland along the river. Got plenty of mud, though. And lots of mud if you yeah. get over in the swamp side. Yeah. We spend most of our time hiking and playing around in the deep woods where their trees oh, look like they're 12 to 15 feet in circumference. The trunks, huge trees all varieties that you find in Tennessee. Uh, but there's a plaque for Mr. Meeman, again, because of his influence in creating the park. Uh, but the plaque is on two big rocks. Hmm. And I thought, now where did these rocks come from? There's no rock in this area. It's all bottomland, mud and sand. Uh, turns out they haul these two great big boulders from the Smoky Mountains oh my. down to the park in Shelby County and set them up in front of the visitor center and put the plaque on that, which seemed appropriate because he had influenced East yeah. Tennessee and West, in fact, from the extremes of the two states. Uh, but very interesting. Uh, never heard of him before. But, uh, and actually, I think the people there that worked the park, except for what's on the plaque, knew very little about who Meeman, Meeman was, uh, but a positive influence from a newspaper editor. Yeah, and it seemed like he was very much respected from what all I can gather from him. And, and where in the world, a name like Meeman, where in the world did that come from? Well, I did notice in some of the information and he's not originally from the South. He was an import as a newspaper reporter up in Knoxville and then began working his way up. He was at one time the Scripps Howard editor of Nature and Conservation News throughout the United States. So he did well in his own business advancement. I've got a little note here. It sounds like someone continues to adjust or move the mic. Well, I can tell you up there in the headquarters, Greg is always antsy. So you got to you got you got to know that. Surely they've gotten used to me by now. I would think. I, I, I really think it, it would be. Now, how in the world you were gone for a while uh, down in Memphis, and who took care of all your herd and all the other animals that are around there? 
Well, the dogs are the only ones that need a little bit of attention. Yeah. And my granddaughter and daughter-in-law came over daily and fed the dogs. The cows surprised me. Seemed to be eating something other than the hay we put out because they went all week without ever needing or finishing the hay I left. Yeah. Uh, I can't explain just what's going on, but they seem to be very healthy and not particularly interested in the baled hay. Yeah. You, you're quite active. And what is it that motivates your action to stay that way, to always, about 16, 17 hours a day, you're doing things. You, you just can't sit on the sofa and watch TV and put your feet up and do things like that. Well, it's having to prepare every week to be on the radio with you. I mean, that consumes so much of my awake, awake time, uh -huh. trying to find something to entertain you for an hour. No, you've got to be busy entertaining <laughs> Mitriette all the time. Staying out of her way frequently. She's always got something going. You're so blessed. Bless your heart. Yeah. Let me, one thing I enjoy doing is demonstrating to our audience your vast knowledge of Hollywood. Oh, crap, here we go. Well, just when I was ready to take a nap. Seriously, you, you're yeah. impressive when it comes to knowledge of old Hollywood. Uh, I'm not even sure Hollywood still exists, but... It doesn't. Yeah. Old not as Hollywood. far as I'm concerned. And your knowledge of sports particularly the sports of our our youth and such forward. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a question and you can impress us how well you know. You can better you name, do it quick or I'm going to be sleeping. Yeah, can you name for me two cowboys who flew in, who, who were pilots in World War II? Two? Um, Clark Gable. Cowboys. Well, he was a cowboy in some movies. No. All right, cowboys. Let let me think. Um, um, what Gene Autry? I don't think flew. That's one of them. Uh, well, see, I told you. It's he 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 was he was in an aircraft, but I don't believe he was a pilot. Yeah, he was a pilot. He flew with the air transport system, in uh, which was part of the army back in those days, and air transport division. And he flew supplies over the hump. Over what hump? Himalayas. Oh. Coming in supplying uh, China from from the west side. Is uh, that how? Is that how he made all his money? Uh, he was he was probably the richest of all the the retired cowboys. Yeah, he did. He made that money buying real estate and reselling it. Most of it. He owned, uh, he owned the baseball team at L.A. Yeah, too. well, he was back as a kid. I remember learning that Gene Autry was the richest man in California. Whether he was or wasn't, he was close. Yeah. Uh, so Autry's one of them. See, I knew you could impress us. He flew in the air transport division over the hump, supplying the resistance in China primarily. All right, another cowboy. I'll give you a hint. He was a cowboy after the war. Oh, after the war. Uh, World War II, right? So that was yeah. in uh, mid-40s, maybe, that we're talking about? Or was it later? Later. Um, 
I'll give you another hand. He flew the Flying Fortress, the B-17, was a pilot over Europe and uh, was part of several missions where they limped home pretty well shot up, but he, he always made it. I know who it is and I'm, I'm stuck on it. As a cowboy, uh, he was noted for his steely nerve. He seemed to always be in control and uh, actually had a lot of other cowboys working for him. You're not talking about Bob Steele, I'm sure. No. But he, I think he flew. I may be wrong. Well, this fellow in later life was uh, head of the Cowboys. What do you mean head of the Cowboys? He was in charge. Of all the Cowboys? That were under him. He paid probably 65 or 70. Oh, are you, are you, are you talking, uh, what, was he an actor or a producer, director? Neither. Wait a minute, he was neither an actor or a producer? He may have been an actor in a sense, but not what I'd call you're throwing up. You're throwing up. Uh, uh, you're pulling my chain is basically what you're doing. Oh, you've impressed us. I was, I was thinking about Ford, who, who, uh, who did a lot of the John Wayne movies. All right. I'm, I'm not being fair. The cowboy characterization is not a cowboy like Gene Autry portrayed. He's not a cowboy like, is he a real cowboy? Was uh, he a real cowboy? Was he herding cattle? No. No, no. Was he a rodeo cowboy? No. Oh, well, I was in the wrong place. Let me yeah. think. Make one more guess and I'll give it away. Did he ever perform in a major cowboy movie? No. See, you're... The, you ever heard of America's team? What are you talking about America's team? Where in the world are you bringing all this stuff up? <laughs> you, you, you're making it terribly difficult. No, I'm trying to give you enough clue. You don't remember what we called America's team there. They no. called themselves that. We, some of us picked it up. I've the never heard of it. The individual who flew B, was a pilot in the B-17s over Europe in World War II, uh, later became associated and very well known and, and uh, uh, respected for his coaching of the Dallas Cowboys. His coaching? Tom Landry? Tom Landry. Well, that's that was, it. That's the oldest coach I can remember for the Cowboys. Yeah, yeah. I think he created the whole concept. But if you remember right, wearing his hat, his fedora, he always was. Who fired him? Uh, uh, the owner. <laughs> Very successful, but apparently didn't get along with the owner there at the end. And that, and and yeah. that was, that made me so angry. Because I was a fan of the Cowboys back in those yeah. old days. Well, I'm surprised you didn't think of that. I thought maybe that was a twist you would struggle a little with. Coach of the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys, Tom Landry. Yeah. And uh, he and Gene Autry, Cowboys in a different See, that sense. was a dirty question. Yeah. You shouldn't have done that. Yeah, well, I'm surprised you didn't get all the hints. I know what's bringing this uh, sound, hitting the... 
the uh, collar. Oh, is my it's, collar? It's down. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's hitting the collar. See, I got another message on the on the airway. Hello, hello. You got me now. <laughs> I pulled down my. You deserved it. I can't hear you now. Well, what's going on? No, it did. It changed the sound. Pull it more up, like I've got it. Yeah, there you go. I'll do it. That should be a lot better. All right, we'll learn this after a while. You've only been on the air with me for 11 or 12 years. Something like that. They keep changing the format. <laughs> That's what happens when attorneys retire. And Well, since we're talking about coaches, you remember who was the coach of the Central High men's te boys' teams? in the 1930s. Ooh, that's before Mr. Pate. Yeah. Uh, no, actually I wasn't born at that time. Uh, he may have lasted up until your birth, but certainly not much beyond it. Uh, his nickname was Pap, P-A-P. -P. Well, it's not Boynton. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was Pappy. Yeah. Pap Cummins. And speaking of coaches, I remember the story that uh, Mr. Shacklett, the photographer, told me yeah. uh, some years ago. Uh, Pat Cummins was the coach, and back then the boys' coach coached all the boys' teams. Uh, but he also was a member of the Presbyterian First Presbyterian Church, where many of the families in the 1930s uh, attended. And uh, Pep Cummins was the Sunday school teacher mm -hmm. for the high school boys. And in fact, let me see if I can find a list of, of the boys that were involved. Uh, Shackley was, of course, one of them. Oh, yeah, he was remembering uh, the Sunday school classmates in 1937. Sam Smith, Jack Shin, John D. Wiseman, Leonard, Leonard Cawthorn, Bill Shacklett, as well as uh, Dick Shacklett, and the two Tucker boys were all parts of that. And and Lytle, we were talking last week about. Who were the two uh, Tucker boys? Bernie and Tommy. Okay. And uh, Bud Lytle. Which one was the oldest? Tommy was the older of the two. Okay. Although they ended up in the same class, Tommy got behind. <laughs> Bernie skipped a year and they ended up in the same class. But uh, Cummins would convene the Sunday school group and then they'd talk sports. Talk sports. What for, else was there to talk about? Uh, yeah, talk sports for an hour. Yeah. And when it came time to move on, uh, Cummins would interrupt the sports discussion and call on one of them to say a prayer. And that would end the Sunday school class. That's so, pretty neat. Yeah, very popular. He always had a crowd for his Sunday school class. Pap Cummins. I can't even tell you what his real name was. The nickname was Pap. I imagine the the word usage uh, when they were not praying, praying, praying. Would prop, yeah, would uh, kind of um, take care of all the other things that were said during that time. Oh, I, I, my uh, uh, preacher, Daryl Lewis, uh, at, at, let's go to the Church of Christ, since you're bringing up Presbyterian. He, he, he had a great sermon yesterday, and uh, he, keeps, he keeps me straight. 
He really does. There's something about going to church and listening to a great message, which I get four times a, a month. Um, it, it, it just uh, it, it, it smooths life out for me. It just takes care of me. So if you want to go hear someone with a special message, you can go on Crescent Road and almost where it dead ends, and it's on the left-hand side. And um, I, I just thoroughly enjoy listening to him. Do they have a Sunday school program? Yes, they do. I just wondered if they talked about football in their Sunday school class last yesterday. I'm not sure Daryl is a, a football fan. I know he's a basketball fan, but I'm not, I, I'm not sure about football. Uh, there, there, there's something about football that, that of course, it's a, it's a violent sport, but it, 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 uh, it's one of those that gets your blood pressure going in the middle of the game. It just it, it fires me up. So I, I, I guess I probably needed his prayers after the game instead of for the game. Well, most of your teams had a poor weekend, I think I heard. They all had a bad weekend. Yeah. I lost every game. Well, uh, I was pulling for the Bills. Uh, that didn't work out. I was, well, no, I take that back. Brady got beat, so I was happy about that one. <laughs> uh, the Bills came so close. Yeah. Yeah. You better say something because I'm going to sleep. Need to wake you up? Yeah. All right. Well, let me give you a little uh, lesson in uh, researching history. Uh, there is, and we encourage, uh, appreciation for the uh, the legends, yeah, and the uh, the colorful, positive spins on history. But there are times when it's, to me, even more interesting to go behind it and find out what really was going on. And one way you do that, if you're interested in that, is just in a common sense way look for the contradictions, things that can't be. Uh, for Isn't instance, that always involved in history? It's very close. It yeah. is. And some of them are so obvious, you wonder why they haven't been recognized before. Like, for instance, the uh, North Carolina grants to the veterans of the Revolutionary War mm -hmm. was very strictly a hierarchy, depending on your rank, your time in the service, you were entitled to a certain number of acres, the size of your grant, mm -hmm. beginning with the privates who served for at least one year, were entitled to 640 acres, which relative to the others was a small, the smallest grant. 640 acres is one square mile. So they were being very generous with the land. But it goes on up. Captain, I think, had something like 4,800 acres, mm -hmm. massive holding by today's standards. Uh, a colonel, 7,200 acres. Uh, when I was first focusing closely on uh, our local history, there are, well, there's a plaque to one of our favorites, Captain Lytle. Mm -hmm. And it says that he got this uh, grant for his service in the Revolutionary War of 7,200 acres. An alarm goes off. 
only a kernel was entitled to 7,200 acres. We know because we always refer to Lytle as Captain yeah. Lytle. He served very ably in the North Carolina theater as a captain, but he never got beyond captain. So he obviously was not eligible for 7,200 acres. Mm -hmm. So I went to the records of the North Carolina grants, and sure enough, that grant was not given to Captain Lytle. It was given to his brother. His brother was a colonel, Archibald Lytle. So the grant of 7,200 acres was the uh, designated amount for one who served as a colonel. And the grant was made to Archibald. Soon after, and before anybody came into this area mm -hmm. to claim and develop it, Archibald died. And so you think, well, I guess it went to his younger brother. But you go to the records, no. Archibald had seven descendants. Captain Lytle, our William Lytle, was one of them. The original grant went to all seven of them. Apparently, the only one interested or the only one aggressive about it was Captain William Lytle. Mm. And he bought out the other six. And all that's recorded in the deed records of the period before statehood. So he actually purchased all but one-seventh of the grant that uh, you know, came to him through the estate. Uh, where did he have the money? He did receive a captain's grant, but it was in another county. In fact, I believe it is now part of Wilson County. His grant was about 4,800 acres, something mm -hmm. close to 5,000 acres as a captain on the bank of the Cumberland River. So it's valuable, very useful farm property which he apparently sold and used the money to finance purchase of the other five or six uh, owners of the, of the land that had been his brothers. So to say that he got a, a Revolutionary War grant for his service in Rutherford County is not the case. It uh, came to him through inheritance and purchase. Uh, I've got a, well, we're going to have to take a quick break right now, but I've got a question for you when we get back on, on those grants. All right, we're going to take a quick break. From NHC's Adams Place, home of premier senior living on Memorial Boulevard, it's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. It's Discount Mattress End of the Year Closeout Sale. All remaining 2021 mattress inventory is priced at or below cost to make room for new arrivals. With over 25 models to choose from, Discount Mattress is sure to have the right bed for you. Discount Mattress is locally owned and operated and has been serving Middle Tennessee since 2001. Come see us at 1647 Northwest Broad Street. That's next to Pinnacle Bank and LexPro Automotive. All in-stock mattresses available for same-day pickup or delivery. Hey Google, who is the oldest seafood market in Panama City? Gandhi's Seafood Family Business is the oldest open seafood market in Bay County, Florida, established in 1955. Hi, I'm Chuck Gandy, CEO of Gandhi Seafood Cajun Market. 
We really are the oldest seafood company in Panama City, Florida. Last year, we franchised Gandy Seafood and are ready to offer this opportunity to you. If you're tired of working for someone else or want to be your own boss or just looking for passive income, check out GandySeafood.com. Be the only game in your town. Here at Bud's Tire, we make buying Michelin tires simpler. I'm Allison Mitchell with Bud's Tire Pros. We offer a straightforward approach to service, including nationwide warranties with every purchase. Stop in today to see our full lineup of Michelin and BF Goodrich tires. For whatever you drive, Michelin and BF Goodrich have a tire to fit any need. Bud's Tire Pros, hassle-free, guaranteed. We're located on East Main Street, exactly three miles from the town square, one mile past Rutherford Boulevard. Visit us online at BudsTireProsTN.com. Now an update from the WGNSRadio.com News Center. I'm Ron Jordan. A bad weekend on Rutherford County highways. A one-vehicle crash on West Jefferson Pike took the life of a Smyrna man on Saturday. Highway Patrol says a 2003 Pontiac Bonneville, driven by 34-year-old Bradley Allen Anders, went off the roadway, hit a culvert, went airborne for about 25 yards, rolled, and then came to rest. Anders died in the crash. A passenger, Amanda Jean Clifford of Woodbury, was treated at the scene and taken to the hospital. Charges are reportedly pending against 25-year-old Clifford. Then there was a serious three-vehicle crash Sunday morning at the old Nashville Highway at Rocky Fork Road. Smyrna Police and Smyrna Fire Rescue, along with the Rutherford County Emergency Medical Services, responded to the scene. The injured were taken to the ER at Stonecrest Medical Center. A man is in jail after attacking two Murfreesboro police officers with a box cutter on Friday. 21-year-old Justin Gordon being held in Rutherford County on two attempted murder charges. Gordon accused of slashing the officers who arrived on the Hawthorne Park South Apartments after he threatened to kill himself. Two officers are treated for cuts and released on Saturday. Schools in nearby Murray County are operating on remote learning this week. A district one of three in the state to be granted a waiver by the Tennessee Department of Education to have every school on remote learning. The school system has 123 teachers out sick or in quarantine and has a shortage of substitutes and bus drivers. The Department of Education has approved temporary remote learning requirements for 110 schools across the state since August. News on demand at WGNSRadio.com. I'm Ron Jordan reporting. The Good Neighbor Network, on air and online at WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's most trusted source for local news. The calendar may have changed to a new year, but are last year's expenses still hanging around? If so, give Heritage South Community Credit Union a call. We help when others won't, and we offer debt consolidation loans to turn several debt payments into one easier-to-manage payment. Or, if you want to get ahead, start saving for this year's Christmas expenses. Our Christmas Club account is a great way to save a little bit automatically every month. Visit HeritageSouth.org to open an account or learn more. Insured by NCUA. Hi, I'm Larry Castelli, and I love living at Adams Place. It's very friendly. Everyone here seems to want to make friends and be your friend. And the staff is fabulous. Betsy, who is the director of activities, is fabulous. She's always having something going on. We have music at least once a week, wine and cheese, and there's all sorts of different type of activities. I would highly recommend Adam's Place. 
Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website and Alexa or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Good neighbor weather. Sunshine in mid-50s for today. Winds a little breezy. Tonight increasing cloud cover, a low of 33. Upper 30s on Tuesday. I'm meteorologist Mandy Faluber on News Radio WGNS. Right now, 31 degrees. Premier Six Theater on Broad and Jackson Heights, showing all of your favorite movies. Call their hotline, 896-4100, or go seeamovie.com. Popcorn Pop Fresh Daily, their movie hotline, 896-4100, or go seeamovie.com. Premier Six on Broad and Jackson Heights. From NHC's Adams Place, home of Premier Senior Living on Memorial Boulevard, it's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS. On FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. And welcome back with Greg Tucker. And Greg Tucker, we were talking about uh, lands that were given to the, the people, the veterans from all ranks. And of course, the higher the rank, the more you got, which I think was not the way it should have been. Um, the the people on the front line, the the privates, the sergeants, corporals on up, uh, the NCOs, um, they were the ones on the very front line paying the price, and their families, I think, should have been um, rewarded just as much as as the higher ranks, but. My question, and I've always had this thought in my mind, and I never did uh, find out the answer. When that happened after the Revolutionary War, uh, how did they know to uh, honor and and give these veterans a a stipend, you might say, and uh, who in the world started that and was it um um was it what area did they mostly focus on when they gave this land well i begin by looking at the motives of the sovereign who's giving away the land Mm -hmm. part of it was to compensate for service Mm -hmm. which means (laughs) to be cynical to get these guys off our backs you know they were promised pay and compensation so Mm. without having to come up with uh, funds to do that we can give away we can give away land but the other motive just as strong i think was we have this territory which we can't really right now control but if we can get a lot of our people to move into that territory and set up housekeeping, so to speak, mm-hmm. begin working the land, generating uh, income resources for the government. So part of it was fair payment. Part of it was in the interest of the sovereign, we need to populate this area if we're going to try to hold it. Well, North Carolina had what later became Tennessee, mm-hmm. all this western territory, other side of the mountains, very difficult for them to govern or control uh, with indigenous populations and such. So they were anxious to move move over. 
uh, I can't speak for anything other than Western civilization, but I would say that as a practice uh, clearly emerged in uh, Europe, mm -hmm. particularly Western Europe, similar motives. And in the case of uh, the New World, the, uh, the, the sovereigns in Europe were rewarding, again, uh, you know, those who had served in the military or in some other way uh, were in the favor of the sovereign. Mm -hmm. And they would grant, uh, take uh, Britain for instance, parts of Canada, Australia, uh, what became the United States and all that, for similar reasons. We owe a debt here we can pay off and also we can get them to migrate into these areas and give us a base to control those areas. So that was going on very much in the case of North Carolina and their grants. Mm -hmm. Virginia was doing the same thing, granting out what became Kentucky. Pennsylvania was granting out what became Ohio and the areas up in there, uh, extending their control by extending the population. So there were several motives, several motives involved. It began almost immediately after the end of the uh, Revolutionary War uh, in 1782-83. North Carolina legislated this program. They made several mistakes, mm -hmm. uh, but what they did, they set it up under the control of one individual, the Secretary of State. He could sign the authority to grant such and such. So soldier would get from the Secretary of State a warrant for X number of acres. He had to move relatively quickly to start exercising his his property rights. Now, you, we're talking about from Washington. <clears throat> no, we're talking about the North Carolina legislature. Ah. This was purely state-driven, although most of the states were doing the same thing. It was state-driven. So it was the Secretary of State for the state of North Carolina, mm -hmm. or the before the uh, Constitution was approved, whatever they call themselves, province, uh, college. I'm, I'm sure there were no political things involved. Well, extremely political. And the next part it did, it said that you had to prove up that you were a soldier mm -hmm. by having a former superior officer sign a certification that you served under his command for, and had to be for a certain number of uh, months, years, whatever, to mm -hmm. qualify you. Uh, so someone like Hardy Murphy, yeah, or General Shelby, uh, he controlled the faucet because he could sign a certification that you were, and the records were such that there might be in the possession of the colonel a list of who uh, was there at the end or who was there at the beginning or something like that. Very difficult to cross-check, cross-reference, mm -hmm. so they take the word. So you have Hardy Murphy. Uh, I have documented his activity and what he did when he would have someone he certified or someone who hadn't shown any interest in taking the, the land. He would go to them and buy the right from them mm -hmm. and then turn in the paperwork and as soon as the grant was signed he would pay the recipient and uh, amass more land uh, 
there were at least one, two, three, four, five, five large tracks around what became Rutherford County owned by Colonel Hardy Murphy. None of them were granted to him by the state. They all were what he purchased. So his dominance as a landowner in Rutherford County was not anything granted to him. It was all that he purchased from grantees. And since he was the one who had the authority to certify uh, that you were in fact entitled as a captain or whatever served under him, he knew exactly who was entitled to the land, knew who to approach. And uh, it's also interesting and almost humorous that he paid for many of the uh, grants that he purchased uh, as a result of service in the war against Britain with British money. You'll see mm. in the deed that X pounds sterling were paid for this, this right. So he was still using the British currency uh, even after the war to buy the land in many cases. That's strange because land was um, gained by people who were traveling in land that had not uh, been purchased by anyone, you might say, and that was free land. Uh, so those people actually earned it as they headed south and, and west, you might say. Well, you bring up one of the conflicts that resulted from the system. Before the grants were being given, there were people who had migrated into this area, mm -hmm. frontiersmen, whatever you wanted to call them, and they were treated as squatters. They had rights if no one came in with a superior claim. A superior claim would be a North Carolina grant to this, this property. Mm -hmm. So those who were the grantees in many cases, now I expect it was true to some extent in Rutherford County because the Murphy Spring and the uh, uh, spring out Bradable Pike, uh, Black Fox Camp Spring, mm -hmm. attracted early settlers, but they didn't have any legal claim to the land. They were squatters. If they were squatting for a period of time, which the North Carolina legislature had set up, they gained some some rights. But that meant if you were a military grantee, you worked quickly to exercise your rights. So the squatters didn't didn't get it. Uh, and in many cases, particularly around the springs and such as that, there were squatters. Also, as you can e expect, the surveys that were done in order to grant the lands and yeah. the description of the surveys uh, frequently were off such that grants might overlap. So uh, you had, even here, uh, Lytle and uh, Murphy got at odds a couple of times because of the overlap and had to settle. In fact, part of Murf what became Murfreesboro was in that situation. And then the opposite, there'd be gaps between the defined grants that were not part of any survey, mm -hmm. vacant, unclaimed land. And on up through probably as late as the 1820s, there were still people claiming and uh, by then, the right to transfer had passed from North Carolina to Tennessee. So you have quite a number of Tennessee grants occurring after statehood for Tennessee, where Tennessee was disposing of or giving title to. And again, that's uh, particularly pertinent to Rutherford County and Murfreesboro because uh, 
Lytle had apparently figured out that between him and one of the Murphy holdings was 210 acres of unclaimed land. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that Lytle was pretty uh, shrewd about it. He probably discovered that relatively soon after you know, he had settled and developed his property. But he kept quiet about it because he had a major competitor for land in Rutherford County, Colonel Murphy. Mm -hmm. And uh, soon after Murphy died in 1809, and all of Murphy's holdings got tied up in a long and tedious uh, probate process. Is that with family, inside family? The probate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because Murphy had a bunch of kids and had, yeah. had a will and all that. But his holdings were so vast, we've talked before, the state legislature ended up handling the probate and approving it. Uh, but in the meantime, Lytle petitioned the Tennessee legislature to claim 210 acres that was unclaimed land between him and Murphy. This would have been uh, Murphy, what eventually became the Oakland's plantation. Mm -hmm. It was in, in between the two. And uh, Lytle, in the same year that Murphy died, filed his petition, 1809. Tennessee legislature, I guess it was convenient to grant it to the petitioner, provided he was adjacent. In this case, he was adjacent. And the only other party adjacent to the 210 acres was the deceased Murphy's holdings, which, as mm -hmm. I say, were tied up in probate. So he gets a hold of this additional 210 acres with a common boundary of his 7,200 acres and a common boundary with Murphy's holdings. And uh, when I see the references to this early period, it'll sometimes say on part of the grant that he received for his services in the revolution is where Murfreesboro was placed. That's not correct either because it was on the 210 acres that uh, he negotiated a transfer to the Murfreesboro, to the town commissioners. So Murfreesboro was set up not on either his land or Murphy's original land, but on this 210 acres, about 40 acres of it was used for, for Murfreesboro. So, and again, being suspicious when you see something that doesn't seem consistent, um, Murfreesboro was established in 1812, located, but in the 1820s, Lytle still had 7,200 acres, which is what he started with. Mm -hmm. So if he still had his 7,200 acres intact in the 1820s, obviously part of it wasn't made available for establishing the town of Murfreesboro. That's where the 210 acres. Again, there is a Tennessee grant of that 210 acres uh, on file. So, you know, if you go behind it to see why could he have used part of his land and still have the same amount of land, reason was it was not his original grant. It was on this small Tennessee grant. Well, you think about it, everything was complicated back then. And, and the one that, the, the people who had the energy and, and the intellect, they were pretty much winning over no matter what was going on. Yeah. And, and w what about 
when um, the British pound was changed to the dollar, how did that uh, involve everything at the time? Because then it, it looked like you would spend most of your time in, in a court of law trying to figure out what was how everything was going to be meted out at that time. Well, there was the state leg <clears throat> no, yeah, the Tennessee legislature, uh, which was the ultimate voice once the state was set up, was uh, uh, spent a lot of time sorting out the the title rights to the land mm -hmm. because of these overlaps and this unclaimed land and the squatters' rights and that kind of thing. So if you go into the legislative journals of that period, you see an awful lot of that. And uh, uh, and sometimes it was done at the county court level, but usually in a, it went to the legislature before it was finally resolved. So a lot of that. But uh, compared to today, uh, if you've got a title issue today, uh, Straightening it out probably is even more complicated than it was back in those days because at least you had a legislature which didn't have to find a reason. They just have to have a majority vote uh, fairly easy if you got the political leverage, which after, let's see, the Hardy Murphy's probate uh, was concluded in 1814, two years after Murfreesboro was set up, and thereafter they had the big stick mm -hmm. uh, because they owned, controlled the sisters and one one son controlled so much that they had the big stick after 1814. And as you know, we've discussed before, part of what the town commissioners thought they had acquired from Lytle turned out to be about one-third Murphy property. So you go back in the deed records and you see where the Murphy daughter, who owned that particular part of it, uh, is defending her rights and eventually settling and changing title where, where agreed. Well, at what point did, uh, did they get to Murphy? only Murphy matters, Lytles don't matter anymore? I mean, when, when do we get to the political part where... Uh, well, One dominates the other. Well, uh, Lytle, uh, I would say, tempered his ambitions after 1814 because he was completely surrounded. I mean, uh, even the, the Armstrong grant on the west side of Lytle was acquired by the Murphy mm -hmm. estate or by Murphy himself. And uh, so he had Lytle boxed pretty much. Uh, but when you got 7,200 acres in the box, you got plenty of resources. And the Lytle family remained, I'd say, for the next 50 years, one of the wealthiest in the area uh, because they controlled that much land and kept it together in the family, uh, at least up until Civil War period. Uh, most of the 7,200 acres remained in the Lytle family. It was, you know, the brothers were sons of... Uh, the original Lytle were dividing it, but it stayed in the family. Can 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 you take uh, say uh, you're a really good attorney. You 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 can used uh, to be. You you uh, can command attention in the courtroom, and I was just wondering if uh, 
Bob Murphy, since I am a descendant of the Lytles, I just wondered if he still owes me some land. And I would, I would like to know right here in, in, in the city limits itself. Now, be careful because it may go the other way. Uh-oh, I better keep yeah, my mouth shut. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't start start a fight there. It may go the other way. <laughs> uh, well, we were talking about uh, things that you should recognize that raise questions about, you know, what what we believe, what mm-hmm. we learned, uh, anecdotally usually. Uh, I had come across some references to a uh, Colonel William Lytle, mm-hmm. who served directly under George Washington in some of the battles in the Northeast. Yeah, and uh, I also had seen references to our Captain Lytle, who certainly served ably uh, in the North Carolina theater, being part of George Washington's entourage mm-hmm. followings and uh, so I researched that Lytle turns out there was a William Lytle who served under Washington from Pennsylvania mm. and he got a grant from Pennsylvania to a large tract of land in Ohio what became the state of Ohio and founded a city there which he called Cincinnati which was named after the Cincinnati Society, or I think they the were Bengals, right? Yeah, <laughs> saw them on TV. Or, yeah, yeah, saw them on TV the other day, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess we'll see them again. Yes, we will. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, William Lytle, I believe he was a colonel, founded Cincinnati, and if there is any family relationship between our Lytles mm-hmm. and the Ohio Lytles. It goes all the way back to Europe before you get a, a common ancestor, yeah. uh, unrelated. And uh, got a call. I wrote about you know, that our Captain Lytle served in North Carolina, was not ever in the Massachusetts battles in that area. I got a call from a fellow, I guess he was a historian, who said, that can't be right said, I've got uh, where people have written that, uh, you know, William Lytle served under George Washington. And I said, that's correct. But there are two William Lytles. In fact, there's three. Uh, and uh, I said, check, check your references. And uh, I never heard back from him. I think he thought the confusion of the names uh, working there. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the third William Lytle did serve in uh, Washington's area of combat, but he was a private. And I don't know where he was from and whether he got any land, but uh, if you just go into the records of the Revolutionary Soldiers, you'll find several Lytles, three of which are William. But back then, there was a lot of land in the United States that really wasn't under the authority of the government of the United States. There was, and that, to me, would be a, um, a legal question. Well, there were, yeah. At various times, the United States has essentially claimed land where the claim was questionable, particularly if you're looking at it from the view of the indigenous population. But they had to buy land from other countries and, during yeah, that history. 
Yeah, in fact, it's almost laughable, you think, a uh, small new government on the east coast of the continent mm -hmm. was dealing with an established country in Europe to buy land that they didn't really have any access or control to except. Yeah. So, you know, we bought from Napoleon the Louisiana Purchase yeah. and claimed that. And, uh, the mid part of the country. Yeah, what authority did Napoleon have to sell something that he didn't really have or control? Yeah. But I guess he gave up gave up any possible claim, but it still is kind of, you know, things were different back then. Yeah, think of Florida, Spain, uh, yeah. and, and even in the southwest. Uh, it's uh, amazing. I think we bought Alaska from Russia, and uh, neither one of us had any real population or control up there. Uh, what we did is we got them to give up any claim and not contest our claim to it. Yeah. You know, this country was blessed because we were able to get where we are now. Well, maybe let's don't put that under the blessing, but um, we've come a long way. Uh, the, the news last night and on the radio this morning, though, is uh, I hope that everybody appreciates that a hot war serves nobody. Yeah, the Ukraine is yeah, the U really in bad shape. Right? I yeah. think they've uh, uh, called all of our uh, uh, people who are um, dignitaries from the United States. Uh, it, it looks like they're sitting on a powder keg right now, which is unfortunate. Well, I was talking about uh, things that make you a little suspicious of... Uh, common history as as we know it. Another one is when you've got a story of something that occurred 200 years ago mm -hmm. or 175 years ago that you can't trace back. And uh, one of those that's very popular is the story about how Murfreesboro got its name. And the folklore history that you and I learned as kids was mm -hmm. that uh, uh, it was going to be named for Lytle, and Lytle said, no, name it for my good friend, Hardy Murphy, who who was deceased at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I went back, and in the Senate journals, it was clear that uh, Lytle or anybody else had any particular role in it other than the legislature. Because yeah. the legislature specified the name of the new town before the place for the new town was even chosen. So I started going back, and I found that that story was repeated uh, over and over in the second half of the 20th century, in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And in the 1930s, there's a telephone directory from the 1930s, which has a little paragraph on the history of Murfreesboro, and that's the last place you find it. Mm. In 1929, a story of Murfreesboro was written by Henderson, a former publisher of the paper, newspaper. Mm -hmm. The story's not there. So I go on back to, let's see, Goodspeed. Well, Fanny Murphy, at the same time in the 1930s, wrote a detailed history of, 
of Murfreesboro and doesn't have that particular story. Mm-hmm. Henderson doesn't have it. So you go back to Goodspeed, who wrote a history of Murfreesboro and Rutherford County in the 1880s. Story's not there. Uh, go back to the annals of Spence that we use as uh, reference because he was alive during much of what he writes about. No such story. Uh, so we get back to the fathers of, of Tennessee history, Haywood and Ramsey, uh, who are writing in the early 1800s, 1830 in that period. No such story. So what apparently happened is that in the 1930s, some of the Lytle family or others uh, writing about the Lytle family uh, picked up an idea that made sense logically that since uh, it was Lytle's property that was used, then logically it'd be named Lytle. But why was it not named Lytle? And they developed this story. So in the early 1930s, you've got an explanation of something that people had always wondered about, which was, as, as my friend C.B. Arnett said, I made that up, but it's logical. <laughs> And uh, the story disappears after you go back to Print the legend. Yeah, the uh, legend became became the history mm-hmm. and came forward. But when you try to trace it back to see, well, what documentation, what authority, it disappears, and disappears about a hundred years before it led, a uh, hundred years after uh, it supposedly happened. So, uh, so uh, that's been almost. Uh, a hundred years ago, uh, 90, is that right? Ninety years ago, the story emerged out of thin air uh, about something that happened a hundred years before that. And uh, by so, me, the news today is very similar to the news back ninety years ago. Is that what you're saying? There are still sources <laughs> who are writing the story as it was developed in the 1930s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for 90 years, we've been, uh, how would you say, brainwashed to accept the story that was developed 100 years after the events. So it was first heard. Is CNN that old? CNN? Yeah. (laughs) Fake news? Yeah. Uh, Let's see. It's very similar. You you know, you think about it. Yeah, very similar. (sighs) I'm tired. Let's go home. Oh, my goodness. Oh, we might go eat somewhere. We might go eat somewhere. (laughs) All right, guys. We'll see you in the morning at 9. From NHC's Adams Place, home of premier senior living on Memorial Boulevard, it's The Truman Show on News Radio WGNS on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com.